Thank you so much for, for showing up. I don't know if you have to be here, if you want to be here, either way, thanks for being here. Um, it's an honor to be here, honored to stand here uh, at Colorado Christian University for the first time. Uh, it has been years in the making, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for championing my book um, on reading for so many years. Um, I wrote that book to hopefully influence homeschooling, and I think it did that, and then it's reached into the college Christian campuses as well, which just blesses my heart. So um, I was going to talk about 12 lessons I've learned about reading, and the more I thought about it, I amped that up to 23 lessons I've learned about reading serious books for 23 years, okay? So we're going to be here until, oh, it'll be early afternoon before we're done. No, I'll, I'll speed it up. We'll, we'll be done in good time, and then we'll do Q&A so you can ask me hard questions. So it's very rare that I'm on this side of the microphone with questions. I'm usually just posing hard questions to John Piper, and that's actually a pretty fun gig, you know, because I'm just listening to the audience emails come in and be like, oh, that's a good one. Oh, can't wait to serve that up to John Piper. And so it's just, it's kind of a hobby of mine to try and stump John Piper, and uh, it hasn't really happened yet, but I, I'm sure one day it will. Yeah, and Lit, uh, Christian Guide to Reading Books, my very first book that I wrote, um, I think it's about 10 years old now. Um, uh, those copies were put out there by the generous, uh, generosity of Desiring God's ministry partners. So Desiring God said, hey, we want to make sure that everyone uh, of the staff and faculty has a copy of the book. So it's there. Um, and most of what I have to say is in that book, okay? So if you were going to take copious notes, it's there. It's there for you already in the book, so you don't have to do that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the distinguished biographer David McCullough once recounted the following story from the early life of Theodore Roosevelt. He said this, once upon a time, in the dead of winter in the Dakota Territory, Theodore Roosevelt took off in a makeshift boat down the Little Missouri River in pursuit of a couple of thieves who had stolen his prized rowboat. After several days on the river, he caught up with the thieves and got his draw on them with his trusty Winchester rifle, at which point they surrendered. Then Roosevelt set off in a borrowed wagon to haul the thieves across country to justice. They headed across the snow-covered wastes of the Badlands to the railhead at Dickinson, North Dakota, and Roosevelt walked the whole way the entire 40 miles on foot. It was an astonishing feat, what might be called a defining moment in Roosevelt's eventful life. But what makes it especially memorable is that during that time, he managed to read all of Anna Karenina, <laughs> Leo Tolstoy's 900-page novel. I often think of that, McCullough says, when I hear people say they haven't time to read. <laughs> that is a great story. And I went into the biography, he's like, how, how is he doing that? You know, he has his rifle in one hand and the novel, and I don't, but he actually had two or three other people with him helping to, to bring them across country. So that's, that's how he did it. He had help uh, with the thieves, but it's still, it's a great story. We haven't time to read 900-page novels, much, much less 200-page nonfiction books, right? And partly we can trace this back to a moment when Roosevelt was just 14 years old, uh, when Samuel Morse of Morse Code fame sent the first telegraph message. He sent it from D.C. to Baltimore in the spring of 1844. His message was a biblical exclamation. What hath God wrought? Numbers 23, 23. Well, we know what the telegraph wrought for us. The new opportunity to shrink data down into fragments and sentences and phrases. 
The telegraph became the private text message, which became the public tweet. Born into the world in the spring of 1844 was the micro-spectacle, a tiny fragment of information, sentences, and phrases, eventually leading to images and videos that we share today, all spreading at lightning speed across the globe. And the faster our media delivery systems became, the more efficiently those spectacles were delivered to the handheld devices in our pockets. Virtual phenomenon that became viral, shrunken down into smaller and smaller micro-spectacles until we now find ourselves hopelessly addicted to our smartphones. Now we can scan videos, we can scrub ahead, we can jump 10 seconds forward with a tap. Sports become a four-second clip. Movies become five-second GIFs, or GIFs, however you pronounce it. The tornado chaser's footage becomes a dramatic 20-second clip. Everything gets rendered down into its smallest candy-sized form. And we love it so. Uh, focusing our attention too long is hard work. Our brains love a little snack break. And the digital media companies know it. So we are targets of attention candy that fits nicely into our appetite for something new, weird, glorious, hilarious, curious, or cute. Or we love something that pertains to us, right? Our likes, people giving us attention. The iPhone is a chemically driven casino that preys on our base desires for vanity, ego, and our obsession with watching train wrecks. And we never stop hungering for Turkish delight-sized bites of digital scandal. Quote, mobile is a great market. It's the greatest market the tech industry, or any industry for that matter, has ever seen, said technologist uh, Ben Thompson. Why? Quote, it is only when we're doing something specific that we aren't using our phones. And the empty spaces of our lives are far greater than anyone imagined. Into this void, this massive market, both in terms of numbers and available time, came the perfect product, came the smartphone. Smartphones make it possible for the attention economy to target our little attention gaps as we transition between tasks in our day. Our attention may be slightly elastic enough to fill up every empty gap of silence in our days, but in the end, it's still a zero-sum game. We have limited amounts of time to focus in a given day, and now every second of our attention is getting targeted and commoditized. The potency of, of digital spectacles today is, is a new phenomenon, but distracted attention is nothing new. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper felt something similar with a, an emerging media in his day. Back in 1911, in 1911, long before AI algorithms rearranged our social media feeds to what was most viral, not most recent, um, magazines hooked readers with entertaining feature articles. Magazines. The problem, Kuiper said, was that you barely had time to read one issue before another issue of randomly collected feature articles arrived in the mail. Okay? Magazines were not troublesome because they were bad, they were troublesome because they were so addictive and good. Okay? And in luring readers to this endless stream of feature articles, it raised a spiritual problem. Kuiper wrote this, quote, each of us must, on the one hand, exert ourselves to participate in the life of our time, while on the other hand, we must continue to protect the freedom of our minds and force it to concentrate on what matters most. 
or else the reader becomes constantly occupied with all kinds of things. Not because this is what they seek or want, but because all of this content attacks them, overpowers them, and occupies every corner of their heart and thoughts unasked." End quote. The coming of the magazine marked a tsunami of fascinating content that simply overwhelmed the human power of input. By contrast, Kuiper said this, quote, the life of faith demands focused recollection, recollection, recollecting. You've heard that term before, important word. Quote, it should not be forgotten that all religion is a penetration with the innermost part of the soul into the unity of all things in order to comprehend the unity of the one from whom everything comes. For that reason, to take delight in, in godliness you must ascend from the many, the varied, the endlessly distinct to the coherence of all things, end quote. Without focus, without the power to see coherence, faith dies. Now, that's a very interesting point that Kuiper makes, but is it biblical, right? That's the bigger point. Is Kuiper right? Does, does so much ride on coherence? To answer that, let's take a moment and think about this with open Bibles. If you have your Bible handy, open to Ephesians uh, in the first 13, uh, uh, 13 verses of chapter 3. I just want to read this section if you have your Bibles handy or your app. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, Paul's epistle, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, along with the Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There's a lot there. So how are we to understand the ancient prophecies, Israel's role in redemption, the mystery of Christ, his global gospel, the church's beginning, the purpose of the church's existence, the fact that the world exists in order to house a church, 
to learn about our new boldness before God, the nature of spiritual warfare, and the ultimate purpose of the creator for his creation? How do we come to understand all of those things? By reading Paul as he puts the story of the Bible together for us. The mystery of the gospel was written down. Verse 3, written down for us. There is no higher tribute to be paid to the discipline of reading than what we read about in this text. The life of faith is the life of comprehending unity. And what's written in scripture is given to us so that when you read it, the people of God can comprehend, quote, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Namely, the ancient prophecies, Israel's role in redemption, the arrival of Christ, his cross-cultural gospel, the beginning of the church, our new boldness before God, the dynamics of spiritual warfare, the existence and purpose, purpose of creation itself, all of that is there. And we understand it. We understand the cohesion of God's plan through literacy, through reading, through learning. Powerful. And not only the church, but also our culture, this entire... The state of the educational system today is facing a crisis of the mind, and the immediate is crowding out the ultimate. You see that in your classrooms. So Christians are ones who are always learning how to learn, and yet the pressures against serious reading are all around us. Secularism is one of them. So too the individualism that's being brought about by social media. So this morning, I want to give 23 ways to read books better from 23 years of serious reading. It's something I love to do, and um, I've been a serious book reader now for those 23 years. Many of you, I'm sure, have been reading a far longer than that. I want to give you some lessons that I've learned myself. They help me. Maybe they will help you. Maybe you can transfer these onto your students. Maybe what we're recording here today can be useful um, in the classroom. Again, all of these things are in my book, Lit. Uh, and we can circle back to things in the Q&A time if you have uh, any further questions or things to add. But be inspired for the lifelong cultivation of reading skills because that's something that you are seeking to impart into the lives of others. And it's a huge challenge. So let's give it very practical. Number one, the first lesson that comes to mind is read daily and read in the gaps. Read daily and read in the gaps. Social media does one thing really well, right? It fills up every gap of life with things that are interesting and eye-catching and scandalous and awe-inspiring and interesting. But we can reclaim those gaps for book reading. And those gaps really add up. Uh, most people can find 60 minutes each day to read. Uh, it sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at lunchtime, another maybe 30 minutes in, in the evening, you can get 60 minutes of reading done in an average day. At this pace, you can devote seven hours to reading each week, or 420 minutes. The average reader moves through a book at a pace of about 250 words per minute. So 420 minutes of reading per week translates into 105,000 words per week. Uh, most books today are about 60,000 words. So assuming you can read for one hour each day and that you read at about 250 words per minute, you can complete more than one book per week or about 60 to 70 per year uh, in that hour a day. It's very doable, and that's just in redeeming the gaps of life. And explaining this to students can be really helpful uh, because they don't realize that, you know, three hours on TikTok in a day, what that translates into reading, okay? Yeah, I don't know. Anybody look at like screen time that students have? Like uh, what apps are popular? Like uh, you just don't even don't even go there. Yeah, it's amazing how many hours get poured into social media. It is 
amazing. So we can envision students with just those little gaps. Number two, redeem each environment. Redeem each environment. Uh, when I started thinking about situations where I seek to capture reading fragments, uh, I began to see that certain settings in my life favored certain types of books. Um, here are just a few of those places. So I've got my desk reading. Um, this is where, you know, I haul myself out of bed, I pour some coffee and head to my desk. That's where I meet with God and do devotions in the morning, and that's where I go through scripture and often where I dive into commentaries in the Bible and serious theology books. Most of my serious devotional reading is done at that desk in the early morning hours. Uh, at my desk. Then I go to the coffee shop. Coffee shop reading, the longest and most difficult books that I need to work through, the books that require the most caffeinated attention, those I bring to the coffee shop on, usually on days off. I'll try and find early morning hours uh, where I can get to the coffee shop and invest two or three hours of reading with singular focus. And once the earbuds are in place and the music begins and the caffeine kicks in, uh, I open the cover and just dive in. For some reason, the coffee shop is where I most can focus. And... Uh, I do a lot of writing, book writing at coffee shops. And a lot of people are like, whoa, how do you do that? You're so distracted. I don't know. It's just the way I do it. So uh, I find a lot of focus at coffee shops. Barbershop reading. Uh, my barber has 20 magazine subscriptions because people waiting for him have free time to read, right? Obviously. Uh, but I never go to the barbershop without a book. Uh, I find that I can read just about any type of book in this setting. Just, again, capturing what, 15 minutes. Capture it. Lunch break reading. Uh, at work, I can often read a brief devotional in small fragments of time. I keep a, an a, array of books within arm's reach at work, uh, including a copy of The Valley of Vision, that devotional. I'd love to just take that down over to lunch and just read for 10, 15 minutes um, in the middle of my day. It's a great time to recalibrate my heart uh, right in, in mid, midday. Evening reading is when my brain is fried, okay? At night, when the sun is down, my brain is shot from the day, I can still read historical novels and biographies. For some reason, for me, this is the best time to read about the lives of others. And then I have bedside reading. Uh, in defiance of all the feng shui experts who say, don't keep books in your, in your bedroom, I do. I keep a stack of books next to my bed. These are books that I read in the 30 minutes before I fall asleep, and each of these books can be read in short chunks. So these are not books I'm intending to read cover to cover usually, um, but only to read a few parts of those books. Um, and I replace that stack of books every couple of months. I just change it out. And then I have travel reading. So I travel quite a bit, uh, but it took me a while to figure out how to make the most of my travel reading. Um, for a while, I traveled with light fiction, uh, thinking that a novel would be perfect on the road. And it just, it just never worked for me. And so I transitioned into reading uh, like business books, uh, like market, you know, Seth Godin kind of books. And uh, that was really helpful when I would take a, a book that helped me focus on my own life calling and what it is that I want to achieve. And it sort of uh, makes me think about my life more strategically. For some reason, when I'm flying in a jet, my life just seems to come into more focus. Like, why am I here? What am I trying to do? Like, I can think at that level for some reason. Um, and so I just began to limit my carry-on books to business books, Christian living books, and some books that give me just enough instruction to stimulate reflection and planning about my family, my job, my life priorities, things like that. Um, and then now I'll step off of a jet and not I'll doodle in the book, or I'll just have all sorts of notes about, like, what do I want to do? What do I want to change about my life? For some reason, uh, travel is just great for self-reflection. Number three, ruthlessly curate your reading list. Ruthlessly curate your reading list. Several years ago, my wife and I both came to understand that if we were going to preserve our ability to read long books, 
we were going to have to get away from life and just read books. <laughs> so we called them reading retreats. Not a very creative title, but we would just go on the road. And uh, this is back when we had small kids. I worked online. I was submerged in social media. That was my life. And uh, all of life was already conspiring against this habit of reading books well in a sustained way. And so my wife and I decided to set, set aside time each year and just go on a reading retreat with a stack of books. Now, I certainly recommend that practice, but what, what was especially fun, and this is the lesson I'm drawing from, leading up to that trip, my wife and I uh, could only bring printed books. That was the rule. You can only bring printed books, okay? So you had to physically travel with your book selections, and especially when we began doing these trips uh, with carry-on bags and started to fly and get away from the kids and things like that, we narrowed those titles down to like two or three titles, okay? You're going to fly somewhere and you can only bring two or three, all right? So you just, you raise the bar on what you're bringing, right? Now, these restraints led us to become ruthless book curators, and it's a lesson that we both use all the time now. A few weeks out, my wife and I would buy or get from the library a stack of like 10 new books, right? Pick through them, sort them, rank them, whittle them down, down, down until we had our chosen two or three. For all seasons of life, that's a great discipline. Curate your reading list carefully. Number four, learn to speed read. Many mature readers will grow comfortable with a broad range of reading skills over the years, and reading speeds is one of them. Uh, from a quick skim of the text, to a close study of the text, to a deep meditation over the text. Good readers know how to deal with text in different ways. On the one side, this means training our brains to read more quickly. And learning how to do this is not complex. And you, can certainly, you certainly don't need a speed reading course to learn how to do this. One simple, one simple way that worked for me is to read faster by running your finger under the text as you read. Keep your finger under the text, increasing the speed of your finger across the page until you're pushing your eyes to read faster than you normally would. In other words, use your finger like a stuffed rabbit zipping across in front of a greyhound sprinting. You know, that's kind of how you use your finger. It's like a run it under the line. And you'll begin to read more comfortably at that speed. At first, this may feel awkward, but over time, this reading speed will become easier. And it plays a role in book reading. Due to differing uh, comprehension speeds, not every reader will be able to read super fast. And that's okay, because a lot of books should not be read quickly anyways. But if you can learn to, to read fast, go for it. Put that in, in your arsenal as a tool that you use. Number five, slow read. Learn to slow read. On the other side of the spectrum, mature readers also must be comfortable reading very slowly. Book reading is not about burning through prose. Some, sometimes the best way to read a book is to, to gear down and read slowly and meditatively. In this situation, beware that impatience can rear its ugly head, make you feel guilty for not reading faster, and eliminate the joy from your book reading. Often our frustration with slow reading stems from our wrong attitude of just simply viewing books as a task to be accomplished, not as a difficult pleasure to be enjoyed. Reading, especially when we are just getting started, can be quite painful. Learning to read isn't like learning to walk, it's like learning to play a piano. It's not natural. So don't give up too easily on books that require slow reading. Sometimes the best books require patience. Get comfortable with the slow pace, even if that's a pace that is a lot slower than others. Number six, install a transmission. 
Install a transmission in your reading speeds. Mature readers know when to read quickly and when to read slowly. Reading is like driving a moving truck through the mountain highways. Anybody driven a, a moving truck through, through the, the mountains? You know, one time you're going downhill and you're like, oh, I hope this thing stops. And then the other time you're going up like 20 miles an hour with the flashers on, you know. It's, I've done that twice. It is not fun to drive through the mountains with a, a U-Haul, but each book has its own terrain like that. Our reading speeds will change as we read because different sections even within a book, like muscling uphill or cruising downhill, over time you will begin to sense that the terrain of a book is different. There are sections you can read quickly, sections you can read slowly. Number seven, anticipate. Before you begin reading a book, determine its purpose in your life. Why are you reading this book? What makes it better than the 10,000 other books that you had to ignore to read this one? That's about the math. If you read 100 books a year, there's something like 25,000 books out there that you have to say no to. When you choose to read one book, you're saying no to 25,000 books. Why? Why are you reading that one book? Is it part of your spiritual diet? Is it for personal change or just for fun? Determining clear reading priorities is critical. Once you have reading priorities in place that are clear, then it's time to ask those specific questions. I want to encourage writers, uh, readers to, to, to sit down before they open a book. Just write down a list of, of, of things that you want to learn. Like, why am I reading this book? Write out five things. I'm reading this book because, write down five purposes before you begin. Establish an objective basis for why you actually read the book. So you know if you're succeeding, if you're failing, or whether you need to find another book. Number eight, determine the author's orbit. Uh, which direction do you want the author to pull you? This is really critical. Do you want the author to pull you into the book, centripetal, or do you want the book to drive you out of the book, centrifugal? For example, if you read a book to simply delight in literary beauty, you want the author to pull you into the book, right? You want to be pulled into the story, pulled into the prose. But if you want the author to inspire your life, business books, Christian devotional books, things like that, you want the author to push you out into meditation on your own life. You don't want to be pulled into the prose of Seth Godin. He's, he's not going to wow you with the prose, right? But he is going to get you to think about your life. That's very important. So know what you want the author to do, um, whether you want to go for personal reflection or whether you want to be gripped by a great story. Determining which direction we are seeking to move is important. Um, almost all the leisure books that I read, are, I, I want to be pulled into a story. I want to be pulled into a life story, biography, historical fiction, things like that. Knowing, the, knowing this difference will shape the way that you read in a significant way. Number nine, run a background check. Before I read a book, I run a quick search online to browse book reviews, find concise summaries, find blurbs, endorsements, and check for any high-profile blurbs that have been published about a book so I know more about where is this book coming from. Uh, this step acquaints me with the author I read, uh, who are they, where do they work, what worldview do they represent. This is a critical step that helps us to prepare for what I'm about to read and can alert me to the author's motiva motivations, like wh why did they write this book and what are they trying to accomplish. This background check requires only a few minutes of my time, but it's time well invested, really well invested. Number 10, grab a pen. Okay, this point's going to offend some of you. Grab a pen, a pen, not a pencil, pen. I buy copies of my print books because I'm a strong believer that you should write in books. 
Yes, write in books. Any write in books? Yeah. Any, with pen? Pen or pencil? We got pens. We got some pen people in here. Oh, that's good. Oh, book mutilators. <laughs> I keep a pen very close, and uh, it puts me in a posture of expectancy. Without a pen in hand, I forget the thoughts that pass through my mind, so I need to jot those down as I'm reading. Out of habit, I grab a pen before I grab my book. And I have a whole chapter in my book lit on marginalia, on what I'm marking, how I mark it up. So if you want more uh, info, that's all in a chapter in lit. But I write in books. I do it, and I encourage you to do it as well. Number 11, slowly x-ray the book. Slowly x-ray the book. It's time to crack the cover and for the first time uh, inhale that new book smell or that old library smell or that... Uh, pixelated, warm, flickering, scentless smell from your e-reading device, whatever it is. Before I begin reading page one of any book, um, I invest 30 minutes just to ask broad structural questions. 30 minutes just ask, like, how is this nonfiction book structured? Adler, in his famous book on reading, writes, quote, every book has a skeleton hidden within its covers. Skeleton. You want to find that skeleton. X-ray for that skeleton. I'm trying to X-ray for that skeletal structure because I, I... I want to know how did the author put this together, because I want to follow his or her mind in how they assembled it in how I read it. So I scan the book, I look at the section headings, I look at the titles, um, I read chapter summaries, if there's chapter summaries at the end of each chapter. Anything that looks like a concise summary gets read first. And I typically read the end of a book, of a nonfiction book, before I start at the beginning, kind of know where things are headed. Yeah, spoiler alert, right? Actually, spoiler alert, a lot of Really solid readers do that. They start at the end and then start at the beginning. It start at the, be at the end, read the conclusion, and then begin at the, at the beginning. So, Readers attempted to dive right into the first pages, but it takes patience to x-ray the book. The time spent slowly inspecting is a rewarding investment. It'll pay off as you move along. And this step has protected me from wasting time reading mediocre books. This is usually when you can sort of smoke out like, nah, this isn't the book I'm looking for. So take time to x-ray for the skeleton and take as much time as you need to do it well. Number 12, determine a reading strategy. Uh, after I x-ray the book for its structure, I have a good sense of the book's main points. And now I must determine how I'm going to go about reading it because there's several ways to read a book, even a nonfiction book. Francis Bacon famously wrote this, quote, some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, others and some few to be chewed and digested. Okay? That is, some books are to be read only in parts, others to be read, but not curiously, and some few to be read wholly and with diligence and attention. End quote. That's very true. So what should I do with a particular book? You have to make this decision early on. You have four options. Number one, you can chew and digest it like steak. This approach says, yes, this appears to be an excellent book that will answer the questions I've asked. I want to read the book carefully and intentionally, cover to cover. Number two, you can swallow it like a milkshake. Yes, this appears to be a helpful book that will answer my questions. I want to read the entire book, but quickly. I don't want to invest too much time in this single book. Number three, you can sample it like a cheese platter. Yes and no, there's portions of this book that seem to be unrelated to my questions. Other sections are very pertinent, okay? So there's nothing wrong with reading only portions of a book or specific chapters. By doing this, you keep your book reading focused, and this focus can protect you from losing interest over time. 
Most importantly, this choice will protect you from the common myth that books must always be read cover to cover. You don't have to read every book cover to cover. Some great books in my library are there because one or two chapters are excellent. And that alone is worthy of keeping a book if there's one or two great chapters. Number four, spit it out like expired milk. You can do that too. No, this doesn't appear to be a book that will answer my questions or at least not as well as another book might. I will move along and look for a replacement. Mature readers learn to engage different books in different ways. Number 13, jog past the questions. Jog past the questions. So let's say you choose uh, option two. You're gonna swallow the book at a quick pace. Um, this is how I normally read nonfiction books. Pace two. Now that I have a general idea about the structure of the book, it's time to read. And I begin reading in the introduction, preface, whatever begins into chapter one, chapter two, and keep moving along at a quick pace. If something is confusing or doesn't make immediate sense to me, I mark it and keep reading. In the margin of a book, I mark anything that I initially disagree with or question or don't quite understand. And then at the end of the chapter, I'll go back and look at what I flagged. Often by the time I've read through to the end of the chapter, many of those initial questions have been answered by the author. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with my questions right then when I'm reading because I'm trying to zip along and understand the, the broader argument. And I can save a lot of time by not stopping every time I have a question. Just tick it, tick it, move on. 14, note the progress of a chapter. As you read, pay close attention to the section headings, uh, the structural indicators, like first, second, Finally, this internal structure is important. Uh, it's worth noting. If these are not marked with clear headings, you may want to make them obvious by underlining or circling them, especially when I'm reading like uh, 17th century Puritans. Like the structure's there, but a lot of times it's cloudy, so I'll just circle those transitions. I'll make things more obvious that I can't see with, with head that don't have headings, especially in old books. The, most old books have no section headings. Um, so the structural indicators are there for you to, to mark and to note in the margin. And these indicators are like street signs that will guide me then through the author's development of a point in a chapter um, when I can see those markers more clearly. Fifteen, discover the thesis. Discover the thesis of the book. Every nonfiction book has a skeleton because it has been developed from a core thesis, right? A sentence to summarize the author's main point, usually. Every chapter should also have a, a sub-thesis statement, something that's easy to see. If not, find it, try to find it, or paraphrase and put it in your own words. For example, in the new biography I was just reading, the author asked in the introduction, why another biography on this famous person? You know, and that's the kind of question where it's like, I, my ears perk up, perk up because that's gonna be the thesis. Like, here's why I wrote this book, here's why it exists. Um, and that was in a single paragraph. Some authors are very kind and give you the thesis that clearly, sometimes you have to go searching for it. Uh, if you can find that thesis, underline it, put an asterisk in the margin, um, and especially if you find those in each chapter as the sub-thesis is being developed. And number 16, know when to quit. Know when to quit. Even if you decide to read a book from cover to cover, this decision is not a vow. You're not making a vow to the book or the author. The evaluation of a book cannot wait until you're done with it. And there comes a point when the reader must stop. Uh, often a book's value or lack of value is clear in the first few chapters. So how far into a book should a reader go before quitting? Um, this is where I use the uh, 100 minus your age calculation. 
Okay, so take the number 100 and then subtract your age and then get that far into the book. This rule states that readers should start with 100 pages and subtract their age. If you are 20 years old, you should give the book 80 pages before quitting. If you're 50 years old, you should give it 50 pages. The more years, the more reading experience, the less time you need before you can close and shelve a book. And it means that when you turn 100 years old, you are free to judge books by their cover. Yeah, you've graduated to that point. Yeah, congratulations. Often readers don't uh, stop reading because they don't have permission to stop. You have permission to stop reading a book, unless it's been assigned by a professor, right? The only book you should read entirely is the Bible. All the other books must prove their value along the way. So don't allow unfinished books to pile up in a mountain of guilt. Show patience with a book, but cut the ties when it's necessary and move on. Again, you've said no to 25,000 books. Say yes to one. Number 17, mark the gold. Mark the gold. I read nonfiction books in order to make discoveries either about myself or about a particular topic. Um, the time I invest in reading is paid back in bits of information. Uh, sometimes only paragraphs, sentences, or phrases, but those change the way I live and how I perceive the world. Um, it's a sweet wage for the labor. John Piper once explained it this way, quote, what I have learned from about 20 years of serious reading is this. It is sentences that change my life, not books. What changes my life is some new glimpse of truth, some powerful challenge, some resolution to a long-standing dilemma, and these usually come concentrated in a sentence or two. I do not remember 99% of what I read, but if the 1% of each book or article I do remember is a life-changing insight, then I do not begrudge the 99%. End quote. It's a great perspective. When 1% of what you read is life-transforming gold, the labor through sifting through the other 99% is not troublesome. Whenever I read these nuggets of gold, I mark them and I add them into a database that I keep on my computer. And that leads to number 18. Collect and store that gold collect and store that gold. Some people collect coins and baseball cards. I collect other people's thoughts. Uh, when I read an important sentence or paragraph, that 1%, I mark it and then later return to it and copy it into a topical database on my computer. Um, if you have a poor memory like me, you will need a place to collect these sentences and paragraphs that you hope to retain for the future, for use. How exactly you go about collecting these insights may look very differently. I'm sure you have a number of tools at your disposal. Uh, for some, re some readers, just use a photocopier. Just photocopy a page and put it in a, a, a folder. Others have handwritten journals that they use. I use Evernote and a uh, simple Word document. Uh, and actually, I used to use an Excel database, too, where I would just type out the topic, subtopic, and then the quote and the source. Very simple, just arrange alphabetically, topic, subtopic, quote. Um, yeah, it's amazing when, you go, when I go back to that early database. I was reading uh, Augustine's Confessions in 2013. I go back and just look at all the quotes that stood out, and they're amazingly relevant and useful um, for things that I'm, I'm writing many years later. So whatever process works for you, find a way to store that gold and use the time uh, that it takes to go back and capture those thoughts that stand out that 1%. Number 19, paraphrase. 
Before we can embrace the author's arguments or reject the author's conclusions, we must first understand what the author has said, right? This is the role of paraphrasing. At the end of a chapter, paraphrase the chapter's content. In one sentence, what was the main point of the chapter? Um, and at the end of the book, restate the main point in two or three sentences. What was this author trying to get at? The goal here is not a critique, but a simple restatement as objectively as possible of what the author attempted to communicate. This is a waning skill in our society today. Very, very valuable to train your mind to say, okay, what is this author trying to tell me in your own words? Number 20, answer the why question. Answer why. An author has taken time to address a topic, a publisher agreed to print it, and you bought or borrowed the book. So why did the author write it? Why did the publisher print it? And why did a bookstore stock it? Each of these questions must have an answer. As you read, these answers may emerge in the author's own language. Your job as a reader is to find the answers to those questions. Why does this book exist in the world? Number 21, find the holes. Find the holes. It takes discernment to evaluate what the author has written, but it requires highly advanced discernment to determine what the author has left unwritten. This is so true in theology, Christian living books, is oftentimes that the challenge is not what was said, but what was not said. Which texts are missing in this book of theology? Which texts are which texts are missing in this book of Christian living? That's oftentimes where discernment is going to expose an author's biases. Often a book's fatal flaw is not that the author said something poorly, but that the author failed to say something essential. So what was left unsaid? What pieces were missing from the book? The questions that you write out before you begin reading become very useful at this point. Okay? Because a discerning reader is coming in with already some understanding of the topic at hand and expecting to read and to see things in the book. So return to those initial questions that you asked to determine if the author missed something important or essential on the topic. Number 22, let the dust settle. Let the dust settle. After you've completed a book, stop and give yourself time before making a final evaluation of the book. Um, like driving a pickup down a, a gravel road, reading a book kicks up a lot of dust, a lot of details in your mind, in the brain, and it's helpful to just let the dust settle before you finally give an evaluation of the book. That will oftentimes come days, weeks later. You can kind of see, okay, what does that book mean to me in my library? It's gonna come in time, give it time. The thoughts that linger in your mind about a book are the thoughts that you want to capture later. Go back and write those thoughts in the inside cover of the book or in a, in a notebook. And finally, 23, compare and contrast books. Compare and contrast books. If we select books with specific priorities in mind, we will inevitably read books with overlapping content. Mature, mature readers compare their books. After reading, uh, answer a few more questions in the front cover, such as, is this book better or worse than the other books I've read on this topic? How does it relate? Is it more helpful, less helpful, more comprehensive, less comprehensive? Where did this book contradict other books? Uh, what content was covered that other books neglected? Um, the best books, the books that cover a topic most thoroughly are the books we respect, cherish, reread, and recommend to our friends. 
So those are my 23 tips for reading nonfiction, pulled from 23 years of reading nonfiction. All of these skills, I believe, will make us more discerning readers, better thinkers, and better Bible readers, and all better able to do what Paul calls us to do, to hold together God's immense plan for his creation and for his bride, the church. Let's pray. Lord, what a statement from your servant Paul. When you read this epistle, you will perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's an amazing statement that when we read Paul, we are reading the unity of all things, God's plan, your plan for your church, your plan for creation, your plan for this university. We perceive you in your work by what we read. Thank you for choosing to reveal yourself to us so fully in this way through your word. You're generous with what you have spoken. May we never, ever take your word for granted. Cultivate us as readers and learners. In this task, may we live humbly before you, never becoming expert Expert readers who have nothing to, to learn, but humble learners, always wanting to learn how to grow, how to be better at this skill. A spirit of humility and eagerness is what we need as we continue this lifelong process of learning how to read more effectively. Be with us now as we transition into conversation. God, what we say to your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.